Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this new FEPS Talks. I am David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policies at FEPS, and uh, we have with us today Sasha Garben, Professor of EU Law at the Legal Studies Department of the College of Europe. Thanks for agreeing to be with us, Sasha. My pleasure. Thanks as well for this very first uh, digital uh, FEPS talk, also for what it concerns its recording. So we are recording this at distance because we are all affected by the COVID-19 outbreak. And uh, somehow our talk will also deal with this. Uh, Sasha is an expert of EU law and in particular of uh, EU employment and social law. So it is actually for you the first question that we are going to ask is whether the set of rules that protect social rights and the well-being of people is uh, up to date in order to defend and protect the people of Europe in this uh, tough moment of uh, health crisis. Right. That is, of course, a very important question. Um, I think, first of all, what we have to be aware of um, as social democrats or from a social perspective is that crises have a tendency to lead to political responses that are rather uh, on the right side of the spectrum or following a rather neoliberal agenda um, instead of a social agenda. Uh, I think that has been documented also in popular literature, such as Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine. And we have, have of course, lived through that with the previous uh, economic crisis very much. And so I think that, of course, this is something we can be a bit um, scared about now, Coming out of the previous crisis, finally we saw a kind of rebirth of a commitment to social Europe um, with the European Pillar of Social Rights, with the adoption of new uh, legislation um, in, the, in the implementation of that pillar. We were on some kind of a social momentum forwards. Of course, I think many of us will be afraid that this current a COVID-19 crisis and the economic consequences that it is bound to entail may derail all of that. So that there is a first sort of, I think, very important uh, point of principle and a, an important sort of political message for the left, for anybody who is attached to social Europe and social protection and protection of workers in Europe, um, is to really, from the get-go in this crisis, not be sidetracked, not be paralyzed, um, but to argue aggressively for the importance of maintaining and pursuing social protection and social standards despite of the crisis or precisely because of the crisis, but not like last time to be sort of caught unawares and to have, you know, rampant austerity rolled out uh, and, and only then to be on the back foot to try and, and defend social Europe. So, so that's an important message to start with. Now, as to your very sort of precise question as to whether we currently have sufficient safeguards in EU social law to protect uh, workers uh, against the negative consequences of another economic crisis, well, 
Unfortunately, I, I don't think that we do. I don't think that uh, we have uh, amended the framework of EU law to such an extent since the previous crisis that we could not again see a very similar attack on social uh, values and social norms and social standards as we have seen the last time. Allow me to follow up on this because I agree with you uh, that uh, this Despite uh, the crisis, uh, had big uh, impact on the well-being of, uh, of the people and a huge social impact. Uh, it is true that uh, the initial uh, emphasis on rebuilding the social Europe for the European people didn't really translate into strong and valid policies for the European people, so that the economic paradigm was not really shifted, and actually it went in the, in the direction of increasing uh, neoliberal agendas and policies for what, okay. for what concern economic policy. But uh, in, in the face of a, a health-related crisis, in which there is not necessarily a fall or uh, of a specific people or of a specific government. Do you think that we can still find that there will be solidarity, a lack of solidarity between European countries? Uh, do you do you see this uh, as a as a real possibility, or because in this case it is is much clearer that we have an exogenous uh, health-related shock, we will feel a little bit more. Uh, united. I think you are right that um, this is likely to be more conducive to a spirit of solidarity than the, in the previous uh, instance where at least for whether that was wrong or right, there was a, a sense that it was indeed connected to wrongdoing or negligence of certain particular uh, governments uh, and, and um, rather than uh, an, an exogenous factor, as you say, like a disaster um, as we are facing now. I think the what we are seeing also in the current responses from the ECB, from um, the European Commission, is that there is a sense of, first of all, perhaps having learned a little bit from the previous crisis um, and not sticking too much to sort of older paradigm of not intervening in the market and not buying government bonds and all these things. And they, they there has been an indication also as to um, allowing some flexibility on, on on public spending and 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 all of these important things. So I do think you are right. We are seeing perhaps that this time it is a little bit different. Um, and indeed, I also don't think that we will see the same amount of uh, shaming and blaming and the sort of asymmetry that we had between North and South um, in the previous crisis. But at the same time, we still have an enormous economic shock. Um, I'm not an economist, so I don't know what effects this current crisis, uh, this health crisis is going to have on the economy. But it seems to me, and reading the, the, you know, the news on this, that it is likely to be a very grave uh, economic crisis indeed. And what you then get is that while maybe the underlying cause of the crisis has given, uh, you know, a rise to certain certain expressions of solidarity, when it then comes to the economic crisis itself and the political questions as to who are going to or what kind of measures will have to be taken and who are going to be the winners and losers of these measures, both within countries and between countries, 
I think we're going to see the same ideological fault lines reappear once again. And I, like I said before, I, I do think there is truth to this that this phenomenon that whenever there is that kind of a crisis, um, somehow uh, neoliberalism has a way to really assert itself early on and to occupy a lot of the ground catching the more sort of the, the left wing cause more on the defense. And once again, I, I can I can see how that would how that would happen again this time easily when, of course, businesses are are going, uh, you know, bankrupt and, and can't uh, afford uh, to pay the workers anymore. Well, then workers will uh, lose their jobs. And the question then becomes, of course, who who pays for that? And I'm I'm not seeing necessarily the ingredients for a different response than we had last time. Apart from the fact that we had last time so recently and so fresh in our memories, and that it was so contested, and that it led to such um, I think a, a legitimacy crisis of the European Union. That maybe precisely because of that very recent memory, we will now act differently. I remember the first speech of uh, Commissioner. Jung in front of the parliament when he spoke about uh, a Europe with a triple uh, social A. And I have very clear in my mind also the speech uh, by the new uh, head of the commission, uh, van der Leyen, about the different uh, and also I would say forward-looking and very well-needed social policy proposal that she was tabling and proposing even before this crisis. Mm-hmm. There is, there was somehow in Europe a renewed effort to boost wages, uh, maybe with the possibility of having an EU-wide minimum wage, yeah. as well as the maybe the finally the possibility of transforming into reality a sort of uh, European unemployment reinsurance scheme yeah. that would help yeah. member states and unemployed people. Yeah to face the consequences of a, of a crisis. Yeah. What, what is the horizon here? Do you think we, it, it would be possible perhaps to uh, take steps in the near future in this? And yeah. you, are also, you are also a legal expert. So mm. you think that these measures can be taken with the current treaties in case? Uh, unemployment reinsurance scheme. Um, I think that is the more politically salient one at the moment, and the one that would probably benefit from the most common ground politically. Right. So um, I, I think employment is the one social concern that brings together quite a, a big part of the political spectrum on the right and the left. So I would assume that there there would be quite some political consensus on that. On the minimum wage initiative, um, I am a bit more doubtful. I think that this is typically going to be one of the victims or easy victims uh, of of a new narrative, which you can also understand from a certain perspective that probably if this is going to turn into an enormous economic crisis once again, that we can't afford that, that basically what we need to be doing is allowing uh, companies and small, medium-sized enterprises to, uh, you know, deal with their staff and, and labor costs much more flexibly in order to stay afloat rather than to impose on them minimum wage standards, right? So that the, the appetite for such a, a measure would, I think, be 
a lot less now, depending, of course, on how the situation develops, right? And if we come out of this health crisis in a week's time unscathed and the economy is rebooted, you know, without much problems, then it's different. But if that is not going to be the case, then I, I, I fear that politically speaking, the minimum wage initiative may be, may be one of the, the, the more... Uh, vulnerable ones to a, a shift in a tone in narrative about priorities post-COVID-19 uh, crisis. As to the, the legal viability of the minimum wage measure, I have um, uh, I've done some, some work indeed because um, there is, I think, uh, a, a misguided belief that um, there would not be any competence whatsoever for the EU to act on uh, minimum wages, simply because the legal basis in the treaty in Article 153 itself in the fifth paragraph says that that provision does not apply to wages. But like I say, that just means that, that that provision does not apply to wages, so that you cannot use that legal basis for a true fully fledged minimum wage at EU level type of binding directive. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other legal bases you can find in the treaties. I've made a case that perhaps we can look at the, uh, the legal bases in Article 175, which is about economic and social cohesion. Um, and that is an underexplored option. It would provide the competence to adopt uh, a directive um, as long as, as the measure is indeed uh, conducive to, uh, to social and economic convergence. And so the focus of that measure should then be not so much uh, primarily uh, on reducing inequalities within member states, but rather between member states. But I don't think it is impossible to think of an EU minimum wage measure that indeed would uh, satisfy those conditions. And then I, I don't think um, there is a, a valid legal reason or precedent uh, in the case law of the court that would mean you could not use that legal basis. So that is a case I have made and I stand behind that. But I, I do fear that the uh, political momentum behind that initiative is going to fade a bit with um, the current situation. As you, as you know, I, st I stand behind this belief uh, as well, and I'm actually very glad that you came out with uh, you came up with this idea of using Article 175 on uh, economy and social cohesion as a potential legal basis for a European initiative on uh, on wage growth. Also, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm an economist and not a lawyer, so I try to look at the economic part. So the rationale for European intervention on wages would not be just wage setting at national level to step into some dynamics that are essentially in the hands of member states. But mostly the interest of the European Union is to avoid a big discrepancies, for instance, between East uh, and uh, West, East and West, North and South, because that is the detriment of the European integration and European uh, unity and yeah. can, lead to, can lead to divergence and, and disintegration. So I, as if I, when you were speaking, I was coming to my mind instead instead of uh, a European wide minimum wages, maybe a wage convergence mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's, that's good that we come up with this uh, uh, podcast uh, with a, a clear policy proposal. Another another uh, thing that I would like to touch with you in this discussion, you have uh, at length written. Uh, 
and studied the, the European pillar of social rights, out of which, well, that included two measures. Uh, if you want, there was a first attempt of the European Union to take care of people working in platforms or with very atypical contracts. And also with the work-life balance uh, directive, it was the f uh, one of the attempts of Europe of taking care of improving the, the rights of people working uh, remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, and that this happened over the last uh, two years, basically. And now this uh, COVID-19 outbreak uh, is basically boosting uh, homework, uh, working remotely, and is also showing how unprotected some of the workers uh, with these very atypical contracts mm -hmm. are. And perhaps uh, it will also create a higher amount of, of people joining platforms to seek for income and, uh, and employment. So in view of what the European Union has done in this sense, and in view of the need of protection, what is your take? Very important issue indeed. And I think that um, you're right to point out that um, coming out of the European Pillar of Social Rights, especially the new directive on predictable and transparent working conditions is a step forward. Um, it uh, includes in its scope of protection potentially online platform workers uh, and um, it introduces a range of protections that could be particularly relevant to them especially to the extent that they work on a kind of on-call or zero hours basis very often um, this directive lays down some minimum rights as to the predictability of their hours as well as an obligation on member states to effectively prevent abuse arising from these types of uh, contractual arrangements. Um, nevertheless, the problem remains um, that the protection of online platform workers and workers in atypical relationships more generally depends very much on whether they are considered to be in an employment relationship or whether they are instead considered to be independent contractors, basically. Um, it's a kind of all or nothing game because once you are a worker, once you are considered to have an employment contract, then you generally benefit from all the national and European level labor and social rights and entitlements, minimum wage and uh, occupational health and safety and, and social security and unemployment and working time protections, everything. Whereas if you are considered independent uh, or self-employed, suddenly you lose all of those protections in many member states. There can be a bit of a difference between the application of national uh, labor law and employment law and EU labor and employment law. But in principle, the, the, the central question, central legal question constantly remains the same one. Uh, are these people workers or not? And then we see this in the United States as well, um, where, for instance, now in California, they, they have adopted this ABC test, a new law that is, is designed to ensure that especially online platform workers are more often considered to be workers uh, and, and not independently contracted in order to them then allow them the benefit of all the protections under, under national social and employment legislation. Now, that is not a problem that has yet been resolved. Um, when it comes to the application of 
EU standards, EU labor standards, the working time directive, you know, other protective uh, directives, including the new one on predictable and transparent working conditions. Generally speaking, the, the Court of Justice gives a very generous and wide interpretation of who is indeed a protected worker. So anybody who performs services for somebody else uh, under the direction of somebody else for remuneration to the exclusion of marginal and ancillary activities. And, and that is a wide definition and it will capture many online platform workers. And I think an indication that indeed, uh, for instance, Uber drivers would be considered uh, workers for the purposes of EU labor and social law. Uh, is in the Uber judgment of the Court of Justice, which didn't concern that point precisely, but it did uh, show that the court considers the control that Uber has over the drivers to be very decisive. And so that is an indication that it will also, when asked, consider that the Uber drivers are, are workers. But there is not a protection at EU level that ensures that online platform workers are treated for the purposes of national labor law and national social security law and national employment uh, regulations as uh, workers, because that, of course, is not directly in the competence of the EU to do. So that is potentially problematic. Now, the only thing that I could consider possible for the EU to do here is to adopt a directive like the one on, on fixed term work, where you basically lay down that regardless of the type of working arrangement, including those that are formally qualified as independently contracted, but that display features of the of, of, a, of a working relationship under the Court of Justice's definition, that for all of those, there should be equal treatment as regards all employment conditions, including minimum wage, including all the national protections, right? So through the, the, the requirement of equal treatment, you can then get to that protection under national employment law, if you know what I mean. So that is a type of protection that we have already given at EU level to fixed-term workers, um, to part-time workers, to, to some extent to temporary agency workers. We have not given that specifically to online platform workers, so only to online platform workers to the extent that they also happen to be fixed-term workers or also happen to be temporary agency workers, right, and fall within the scope of these directives. So this is something that, that, that could be considered. Um, I, I personally, I'm not in favor of, of a measure that only looks at online platform work because I think that misses the important point that online platform work is a very visible, very hotly debated, very politically sort of uh, sexy uh, instance of atypical employment. But there are many others. And, uh, you know, we have seen just much more generally over the past decades, uh, precarization of work, uh, increase in non-standard forms of employment. And they present the same type of normative concerns and political concerns. And so any measure I feel would have to deal with that non-standard form uh, of employment and the, the rise of that and that precariousness in a more sort of comprehensive and holistic manner. But that could totally be done. I mean, uh, the, why not, you know, revise the uh, fixed term work directive to make it into, a per, you know, a equal treatment for all atypical employment uh, relationships type of directive. I think mm -hmm. it's possible.
let me try let me try to summarize this new policy suggestion that that you just that you just gave yeah. not so not a specific regulation to uh, somehow set the rules for platform workers and crowd and crowd and crowd workers or atypical workers but just an expansion as and an extension of the current uh, uh, rights extended to fixed term and part-time uh, workers under of course the logic that all workers should should have an equal treatment exactly yeah so so basically a specific measure that would work with the same logic as the one that we already have on fixed term workers but that addresses all atypical forms of employment. That would also go in the direction of uh, understanding how work changes because yes. employment uh, in this time of uh, digital transition, climate transition, uh, health crisis, homework, uh, we are going to have um, a plethora of different types of working arrangement. And perhaps it's good to realize that all of that is work and employment. Yeah. All of that, uh, therefore, necessitates some basic coverage. Yeah. Um, you have, uh, let me try to ask you a, a, a difficult question, perhaps. The last one of this, uh, of the, of this podcast. <laughs> you have expressed a little bit of uh, fear that uh, the current emergency will not translate into a stronger and more social Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, that we might end up again to uh, somehow lose our intellectual and political fight uh, with uh, right-wing people and right-wing ideas. Yeah. If you could, uh, and actually now you can in this uh, podcast, mm -hmm. give, give an advice to progressive people, to social democrats, mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. activists to politicians at different level of governments, what would be your, your suggestion in order to make the best of the crisis to transform our institutions for the good of the people? Exactly. Well, my advice would be, first of all, constant vigilance and no complacency and no benefit of the doubt and no hesitation and not thinking maybe now is not the time to make the social case or maybe now is not the time for uh, these kinds of fights or arguments because we're just trying to survive a first crisis, then politics. No, crisis is politics and so the politics needs to come immediately now in this crisis in taking the central decisions about how the crisis is governed um, how it is resolved who pays the price for what um, when social investment measures or economic investment measures I don't know what are taken who do they benefit who don't they benefit um, and and to, to to be aggressive and proactive and what the message, I think, should be in that sort of proactive, aggressive attitude and this vigilance and this mistrust, I think, that we should have from the get-go is to say, not again. Do not make the same mistakes again. We have seen last time what a disaster was created through austerity. Uh, not just a social disaster, but also a political disaster. I, I 
I firmly believe the rise in populism, um, Euroscepticism, but also national populism um, and nationalism and the rule of law crisis and all these developments that we have been complaining about, rightly so, for the past couple of years, they are intrinsically connected to austerity, to the, the wrong response to the previous crisis. Um, so that crisis has been mishandled from the start from a political perspective, from a social perspective, from a democratic perspective. And I'm not an economist, but I think some economists will even say also from you know a purely economic perspective. So not again, not again that same old story of austerity and deregulation and you know uh, anything uh, to just uh, keep businesses going, uh, e even if that means, you know, giving up on everything uh, that we stand for socially. But that precisely now, precisely in a crisis, it is important to stand for values, to stand for principles and to uh, sell the case for social Europe um, in political, economic, legal, uh, normative, theoretical, ethical, economic uh, terms. Uh, and just to be ex to realize that this is precisely the moment to come out, you know, uh, in full force on that and not to say, OK, let's give this a couple of months and then rethink, you know, about or, or sort of uh, think again about uh, our, our, our social objectives. This is precisely the time to do it. Um, yeah, that that I think would be my message. Dear Sasha, dear Professor Garben, thanks a lot for um, the nice ideas you share with us. We will remain vigilant and <laughs> let's try not to waste uh, the suffering of the European people and yes. uh, transform institutions as well as policies uh, to make sure that we have better means to deliver on the quality of Europeans' life. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come, stay tuned!